hung up the phone, went to my laptop and booked a one-way ticket to San Francisco. And I had no job. I had no place to stay. But I thought, you know what? Let me just give it a shot. Like, let me try and give myself six months. From the rise of Impossible Foods to McDonald's announcing their McPlant menu, plant-based food has undeniably taken the market by storm. Beyond the mainstreaming of veganism, fast forward to 2021, a global crisis and global lockdowns drove consumers to reassess what they eat and their impact on the planet. The end of the year saw analysts now predict the plant-based food market to grow by close to 12% by 2027, valuing it at $74.2 billion. Riding this wave is Clara Foods, a Silicon Valley venture-backed company making animal protein without the animals. Led by Adro Elizondo, Clara Foods is disrupting food technology, developing performance protein products, and making the world's first animal-free egg white protein. Using advanced fermentation to brew protein that is cleaner, greener, and kinder to our environment, today we take a personal deep dive with the man behind the vision of eggs without chickens. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Before we hop in here, I've got a quick favor to ask you. Smash the follow button wherever you're tuning into this episode. This way, you'll be the first to know about new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends, colleagues, business partners, so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture intersection and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. So let's get started here, Arthur. I really want to, you know, as I mentioned in the prelude, I really want to get deep into your story. Uh, Texas boy decides to take a one-way ticket to San Francisco, never look back. And then uh, here, here's the catch, right, which is really not uh, common to the story of the Silicon Valley journey, but that you've created an obsession for eggs. So tell us all about this, where did this begin, why, and, and all of the above, Atro. Such an interesting question. And, you know, like you said, I I think a lot of, of what ultimately led me to Clara and to found this company was from my, my own journey. I grew up in Texas and I'm Mexican by heritage. And so I grew up eating, you know, like any good Texan, my barbecues every Sunday and like any good Mexican, my two extra breakfast every morning. And I never thought about where my food came from until I began making my way in government. And I pursued government because, you know, I I felt very lucky in life. And I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to something bigger than myself. And government for me was this way of, you know, having an impact on a much larger scale. That if I could, you know, change a law in one small way, it could impact the lives of millions of people. And that was really attractive. So I started working for my congressman in Texas. He sat in the Ag Committee in Congress, recommended me to the USDA, began working in the Food Safety Inspection Service, FSIS for short, which is the largest right. part of the USDA that oversees and regulates every sort of house in the country. And where once I learned, you know, truly and literally like how the sausage is made, it was one of those things that I couldn't unsee the kind of mm. scale at which you produce animal protein. And the more time I spent learning about food, the more angry I became. Why had I not been taught this before? Like how, how come I never even connected the dots in terms of how to get my, the food that I was eating every single day to my table? No idea that we slaughtered over a million animals every single hour in the U.S. alone to feed less than 5% of the world population. I had no idea that 80% of deforestation in the world could be directly, directly tied to animal agriculture, that three out of four emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, right? And, And the list goes on that it takes over 600 gallons of water to make a dozen eggs. And the list goes on and on and on. And I... I thought there has to be a better way. Like, why do we have to accept that that just because this food is tasty, that we have to destroy the planet in the process? 
is there another way to do this? And the more research that I did, the more I realized that the technologies of today are so different from the technologies of yesterday. And there was a real shot at using great technology to make the foods that we know and love, but produce them in a way that is more aligned with our values and has a smaller and kinder footprint on the planet. So you have this realization, uh, this sort of epiphany that I think we all have in some points in our life, right? Something just clicks. Uh-huh. But tell us then, how how do you take a revelation like that, a personal revelation yeah, yeah, yeah. and say, okay, I'm going to do something about this. What What was your strategy there? Did you even think that this would be a career that you would work on? I mean, it's been six years, but you know, as we know, the founder journey for some, it's a lifetime. How did you start on that path? Yeah. And that was the million dollar. I mean, really the the million dollar question for me is how can I make an impact? I'm just, you know, a 20 year old kid who wants to, you know, hopefully build, you know, be a part of building a better food system. But I had no idea what that looked like. I had no technical background. My background was mainly in government. Didn't think I was going to make a big impact in food and ag through my work in government until much later on. And so at that point, it was really possible of elimination. And I thought, well, maybe I can spend a couple of years in venture capital or at a hedge fund or, you know, build my career in some other place so that then I can build a skill set to then ultimately bring that to the food, you know, to food technology in some shape or form. But I didn't know at all what that looked like. And I thought, you know, I should just follow this path. You know, I'd gone, studied in government, worked, you know, went to Harvard. And and and, and now I, I was building the, the five-year plan or 10-year plan that I had for myself. But I honestly, Sarah, it really was it just, it became an obsession and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And everyone I talked to, I would, you know, just use it as an opportunity to talk about the different companies in the space that were doing really great stuff. I had Google alerts for all these different topics. At some point I thought, look, I'm going to be miserable at any other job because I can't, Mm I, 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 I won't be able to focus and I won't be able to do a good job in any other job because my mind would get, was going to be somewhere else. I was about to take a job actually in the Obama administration. Um, and then I called my, my former boss at Credit Suisse, um, who mm-hmm. was also you know vegan and like super into the whole plant-based ecosystem. And I was like, hey, I'm about to take this job. It's amazing. It's a great launching pad for my career. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. you should be in San Francisco, like, working on food. Like, that's what you've been talking to me for the last year and a half. Like, what's going on? And in that moment, it hit me. And I was like, you're right. Like, what am I doing? And I thought, look, if not now, when? Literally, you know, hung up the phone, went to my laptop and booked a one-way ticket to San Francisco. And I had no job. I had no place to stay. But I thought, you know what? Let me just give it a shot. Like, let me try and give myself six months. If I fail miserably, at least I will have that peace of mind to say, all right, I tried it and I failed. Let me go back into government or into finance or something else and, and be able to have more clarity at that point. But I would have always wondered what if I had not pursued it? Yeah. What, what if I had pursued it? And that was ultimately what, what made me really take that plunge. Love it. Love it. And uh, definitely see some similarities there. I still have my Google alerts, actually. Curious to hear then, you know, you arrive in San Francisco uh, with this dream. How, how did you approach it? Did you um, sort of already have a, a mental map of, okay, you know, let's start by putting the right people around me? But because again, you're not a technical founder. You came from government, right? I've done so much research. I knew who was working in food tech. I knew, you know, I had no, I knew about all these companies. And actually, when I was when I was still in Boston, 
I, um, a, a dear friend of mine connected me to Josh Falk, one of the founders of Hampton Creek, one of the first food tech companies in the space. I told him, look, I really want to get into the space in some shape or form. Like, who should I talk to? How can I learn more about this? And he was like, look, come, come to this conference with me and, um, and see if you meet the right people. And so two weeks later, I go to this conference um, at that point, uh, Hampton Creek got sued by Unilever for the mayonnaise incident about the, you know, the labeling. He doesn't end up showing up. And so I'm there by myself and I find this empty seat, the only table with young people in it. It was like 50 people. It was one of the first ever food tech conferences back in 2014. This was seven years ago, back you know, before anyone even knew what Beyond Meat was or Impossible. And across the table from my future co-founders, Isha from New Harvest and then Dave Anshel, my te- technical co-founder, molecular biologist by training, and then also the founders of Perfect Day, another alternative protein company. And we just got to talking and my co-founder, Dave, you know, shared with me this crazy idea that he had about making eggs without using chickens. I just, I thought it was such a brilliant idea. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then a couple of days, we just kept talking about it. And a couple of days later, Isha and Dave approached me to then um, start this, this company and build a business plan to apply to IndieBio, which is a world's first biotech accelerator. And, and that's how, you know, they gave us our first, you know, 50 K to build a prototype. And then it was all history from there. Love it. So, and, and this is super interesting. You sort of gravitated to uh, sort of a group that was already thinking about it in picking mm-hmm. co-founders. This is a question that we don't talk about enough. You know, how do you think about partnership here? What have you learned in, in, you know, having the team that you have now to be building such a ambitious vision, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's such a, it's such a great, um, it's, it's such a, to your point, it's something that that doesn't get talked about enough. And out of it was, was serendipity. I hadn't met my co-founder until literally two weeks before we built the company. I know people who've, you know, spent years working with, with, with someone or, you know, trying things out before they really know and yeah. for me, I mean, part of it was there, I mean, there weren't, there weren't really that many people, but end up working out well was we were all, we were so committed to creating this future, right? That we had all, you know, in some ways, some shape or form, like had to come out of the woodwork and actively seek this space out because this wasn't alternate protein seven, eight years ago, wasn't what it, what it is today. And so there were such a there's such few people and very few and far between that we over index a lot for passion and mission. And that for me, with my co-founder, like he was willing to drop everything to make this happen. And so was I. Uh, and Isha had dedicated her, I mean, her career already to this, to, to, to this approach that, you know, it was one, one of those things where we have to act now. We have to get together. There's almost, you know, it's almost like there's no choice. Like we're the only people right now who want this badly enough that are actually sitting at this conference trying to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So then how did you all map uh, sort of each of your roles? I mean, of course, in the early days, right? It's uh, all hands on deck, do whatever that's necessary. And I, I think yeah. I definitely see that in your team because you're all so passionate about it, whatever, it doesn't matter. But yeah. as you now grow, I mean, you've got how many employees? It's going to be hitting 60 very soon. H- how do you think about that transition of roles? Yeah. How did you all map it from phase one, phase two, phase three as a founding team? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think we were very lucky in that, you know, Isha was going to be supporting us more as an advisor because she was still leading New Harvest. And so it was really my technical, my co-founder, Dave, and myself. At that point, you know, he's technical and I'm more, you know, I'm, I'm just naturally more inclined to the business and strategy. And so I led, you know, and so the, by default, I became the CEO. He became the CTO, leading the technology part of the business. And, and so that was, you know, it was pretty straightforward early on. And then as the company grew, to your point, we, we were building a very... Cap, you know, very capital intensive and tech intensive business, which means that we have to also bring talent from the outside, from industry, right? And find these people, few that are few and far between, that have you know real, you know, deep industry experience and have a heart for what we're doing. Because especially in the early days, 
like resilience is so important because it like it, it just it takes a special kind of person to weather the roller coaster that is a startup where one like you have the the highs are just so incredibly high and the lows are you know like gut wrenching and in the same <laughs> way you have multiple of those right where the it's like you yeah. learn something that can kill the company one moment and then the second an investor writes saying hey we're going to fund you know we we, we we want to we want to put some more money into the company or you know we get a great piece of feedback from our from a customer that just lights up the entire room in retrospect that was something that was hugely important for us um, to to index for very early on and so yes now we're around 60 people and we uh, and we'll be over 100 um, by early next year so we're looking to double the yeah. the the business as we continue now launching more products off the pipeline. But very for the first several years, especially when you came to visit, we were like 90% R&D in terms of our headcount because we wanted to, we needed to develop the technology before we could even right. sell it. Right. And so yeah. now we have a much more balance where it's probably now 70, you know, 65, 70% R&D. And then the rest, you know, GNA, marketing, sales and business development. Got it. But talk to me a little bit about the approach. Uh, you know, of course, we, I think, connected yeah. because of the fermentation angle of some of the startups that I was looking at. Uh, but for the audience, you know, this concept of what, uh, how, how is he doing this? You know, yeah. is this even possible? Does it have the same taste, texture? Um, tell us a little bit about yeah. the approach of the technology and let's let's get geeky here. <laughs> Again, growing up in Texas and Mexico, I like my mom and my family, like, you know, if you put the word vegan on it or like, you know, they automatically, you know, push away from it because they think it's yeah. not going to taste good. And I knew that I like for us to be successful, we had to make products that truly were delicious, that we could leave with a product first approach, that products that were amazing and that just so happened to be vegan, but that we weren't leading with that, that we were leading with amazing kick-ass products to begin with. I knew that if we didn't meet people exactly where they're at, we were only going to be able to appeal to the San Franciscans and New Yorkers of the world, right? The people on the coast. And, and I wanted a product to be for every human on the planet. And that meant that we had to hold ourselves to an incredibly high bar and that we needed a technology that could rise to the occasion. And that's why we, we decided to go after precision fermentation specifically. And what it means is that it enables us to make literally the exact same proteins that are found in animals. So we, through our fermentation technology, we can make proteins that have the same exact taste, texture, nutritional profile, and amino acid profile. They are by every sense of the word, identical to what the animal makes. So we can make real animal protein without ever using a single animal. And as crazy as it sounds, because it does sound crazy to make real animal protein without using animals, the technology has been around for 40 years. The, you know, the insulin was actually the first ever animal protein made without using an animal. And that was for diabetics. And we needed to kill... Yeah. 50,000 pigs to make one kilo of insulin that was used to for every diabetics at, before the 1980s. So if you had if you had diabetes, you had to get this insulin from animals and it wasn't vegan, it wasn't kosher, it wasn't halal, it wasn't vegetarian, right. but you needed this life-saving protein. And that's and, and that's how every single person got their insulin protein from. Now, fast forward to today, over 99% of insulin is made using fermentation. And so we thought, look, this technology is incredibly powerful. But and it's mainly used in pharma for a lot of different other a lot of different therapeutics, a lot of different drugs. But we said, can we actually apply the same technology to a problem that that I specifically find incredibly urgent and say, well, can we replace, you know, animal proteins from the food system as well using the same technology? And, and the way that it works is that in the same way that brewers use yeast to convert sugar into alcohol to make beer or wine, or in the same way that bakers use yeast to convert sugar into carbon dioxide to leaven bread, the yeast that we work with naturally converts the same sugar, but into protein. 
to make any other kind of insulin, uh, any kind of animal protein, is that we insert the DNA sequence that codes for that specific protein into the yeast. So as the yeast eats sugar, instead of making any kind of protein, it actually is making it that specific protein that is encoded by that DNA sequence. So we use the yeast as a little computer. And instead of yeah, zeros and, and, and I, I just want to pause there because yeah. uh, this is another interesting fact that not many viewers would know, right? You can today 3D print that sequencing and that DNA. I, I think you source it literally through a database, right? That, that's exactly. how you... Yeah, exactly. And in online databases, you can find almost every major protein known to man. So all, you know, all the egg proteins, all the milk proteins, all, all so many of the human proteins, all, all, so many proteins are already on these databases. And so we essentially have a company 3D print those DNA sequences for us, the way that they do to make all kinds of, of proteins for the biotech industry that's been around for, again, for, for decades and we have them 3D printed for us. And then we basically mix that with our yeast. The yeast, you know, in, integrate that DNA and then start producing and 3D printing that protein. Uh, and, and again, the, the protein is identical. And the, the body is able to receive it in the same exact way. And that's why for us it was really important. I'm not, you know, we're trying to change the process, not the product. It's how do we, the factory farming model should not exist in the 21st century. This technology is destroying our lives as humans, but also the, 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 the health of, of the planet. And so if we can really change the process and make it not just more sustainable, but actually more efficient, right, that we can make it now more cost competitively and at the same time, you know, really save the planet in the process or at least help in averting this climate crisis why not? So tell us then about the the product. I know you've uh, released, was it uh, Hosein Pepsin? Did I get that right? Was that your first exactly. product? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we've, you know, we've spent the last six years developing the core technology around how do we make animal protein more efficiently mm -hmm. than animals can make it? Because at the end of the day, you know, we know the technology is protein agnostic, so we can use it to produce any kind of animal protein, but the, 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 the real challenge is how do you make it affordable for people? Because eggs, you know, eggs, meat, and milk are really, are, are, are still quite cheap. And so we needed to really solve that key challenge of can you actually get a microorganism like yeast to be better at making egg protein or animal protein than a chicken, right? Or an animal more broadly. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu living entrepreneur and co-founder of rocket boat he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcasts and that's what we spent the last six years doing and now that we have the platform built out we're now monetizing the platform and launching products off the platform. And the first one we chose was um, a pig protein because we thought, look, mm -hmm. there's a there's a real need right now. Most of the pepsin, pepsin is kind of a sister protein to insulin, for example. Um, it's found in, in, in the stomach and it's the chief enzyme that helps break down other proteins. And so you go to Whole Foods or Walmart or any store that has supplements in a supplement aisle, there is a section for digestive aids. And so it's a nutraceutical and most of the enzyme, most of the products that, that, that are for digestion use pepsin to help people who have digestive issues break down proteins. So Pepto-Bismol actually got its name from pepsin uh, and a mm. bunch of other products. And so we can now, and all this pepsin is made from pigs today and people don't know mm. about this. And there are so many pro products in their food industry that use animal proteins like wine or Guinness. Guinness was still using fish bladders to filter their beer as of like three years wow. ago. And people had no idea, right? And so- I had no idea, yeah. <laughs> like wine, 
a lot of the wine that 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 that, that is made is uses egg whites to clarify it, to get rid of you know to, to to clean up the color, and so we see that there's a you know there's so much you there's so much sort of legacy animal proteins in the food industry that are actually pretty expensive and really terrible mm-hmm. to source. And how can we make them cheaper and more efficiently and more sustainably and essentially clean up the back end of the food industry? So we launched it last year and we're now selling it across three continents. It's a profitable product yeah. and we're really proud of that. Fantastic. So how far are, out are you in fully emulating uh, while replacing egg, right? Uh, in, yeah. in, in the way that it's produced today with, without animals? Yeah. So I'm excited to share that in, in less than in a couple of months, uh, mm-hmm. we are launching the world's first animal-free egg protein, which oh, you, fantastic. You, you will find nationally across the U.S. So excited. And I'm glad this is breaking here. You heard it here first. Fantastic. <laughs> and, and I want to hear a little bit about that process, right? Um, you know, it, it, this when visions are huge and, and ambitious as, as yours, of course, it takes um, years, you know, it took you years to get to this stage. And, you know, there's also a lot of challenges actually with fermentation, right? Yeah. Uh, the process itself. But you took a very interesting approach. I know you've had a partnership recently uh, with Enhauser Bush um, mm-hmm. and you're tolling, I believe, at their facility as well. So talk to us a little bit about that approach of being yeah. willing to think about yourselves as a drop in rather than doing the full end to end from the start. Exactly. We needed solutions to match the scale of the problems. And this problem is massive. Over a trillion eggs are consumed every single year. A trillion. It is one of the most ubiquitous protein sources on the face of the earth. And it is made using terrible production processes. These chickens don't you know, have literally the space of an iPad to move and live basically their entire lives. They will never see the sun. They will never walk on grass. And they're produced incredibly, um, incredibly inefficiently as well because chickens have to not only grow you know, as a chicken, but then use some of that energy to produce that egg protein. And so it becomes a very inefficient process at scale. And we thought, look, can we – we're using fermenters. We have developed the technology. Why do we have to do everything ourselves and take another five, 10 years to do so when we can plug and play with the incumbent industry? And why not partner with AB InBev? They are the world's largest fermentation company. They have capacity unlike any other company in the world and a footprint in most regions on the, you know, on the, on the planet. And so we thought, look, if we really want to do this at scale, do it affordably and really efficiently and quickly, we don't – why reinvent the wheel? So we partnered with AB InBev to work, on, you know, to, to work with us on the, on the, on the back end, uh, on the production side. And then we're working with Ingredion, a Fortune 500 ingredients company, on the front end to do the distribution. They're in 120 countries and we thought, look, this is a, the, you know, they know this market really well. They sell egg replacers today. You know, they, they, they know they sell to almost every major food company on the planet. And so if we want to have a way to really drive impact, drive scale, and ultimately drive revenue and profit for the business, why not divide and conquer us having focus, focusing on what we think is really the, 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 the um, the, the value that we're creating, which is on the protein side, on developing this core technology and then working with two of the world's best companies to then drive scale and adoption so that we can get to, you know, so we can really have a, a massive impact as quickly as we possibly could. Because Interesting. My question to you is if the world has always wanted this solution. Why, why did it take so long to get here? And how? What, what is the landscape today? I mean, we have so many tailwinds, right? I mean, COVID is one, people becoming more aware of sustainability. Uh, the fact that Beyond Meat Impossible Burger almost started, I feel like, in the premium uh, category. Mm-hmm. So it's actually something that people who can afford it wanted. But then now, of course, you're opening it up to uh, the whole market. So how did you view... Um, sort of competition who else is in the ringer here is perfect day a competitor Uh, how are you viewing things yeah so it's a great question and and i mean ultimately sarah the 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 challenge is like you know when we started the company we're the fifth oldest company in the space after beyond meat impossible just and and perfect day 
Um, you know, we've been, you know, when, when, when we started our companies, the world wasn't talking about alternative proteins. Like this wasn't a thing. Like now there's over a hundred different companies all in every corner of the, of the alternative protein space. And the world is very different now. And, and there's a lot more, I think that that can be done. There's a lot more capital and a lot, um, uh, and, and a lot more interest from consumers. And to your point, it is really a perfect storm because of all these incredible tailwinds. That wasn't the case six years ago, but in terms of the competitive landscape, there are two sort of fundamentally different approaches here. One is kind of working, you know, the plant-based approach, which mm-hmm. you're using off-the-shelf technology for the most part. And so it gets, you can get to market much, much faster. Hence why Impossible, Beyond, and Just were able to get to market so quickly. And that's really exciting because you can drive adoption pretty aggressively. However, when you're using a deep technology approach like Perfect Day and ourselves or some of the or, or, or some of the more kind of cell-based companies, the, the lead times to actually do the, the, the technology development, right? We are actually sourcing and creating our own ingredients, our own proteins. They're not off the shelf. And so there's a, you know, typically on average, it's around seven years to commercialize a product made using biotechnology. And so the, the timers are pretty long. And so it's been a long time coming where we just had to be in R&D for the last six years to develop this. But now it's kind of all coming at once. We launched our pepsin and then we're launching our egg protein in a couple of months. And then we're actually launching another protein in like six to nine months. So it's all coming very quickly now that we've built the core technology. Uh, and then the other challenge in terms of driving adoption for us is, is scale, right? Even with working with Bev. That is not happening overnight, right? We also need to work with them to ultimately scale. Also make sure that we're working with the FDA and, and the regulatory and everything is, is in place. So when we launch our products, we know that they are safe and affordable and accessible and delicious. And unfortunately, some of these things, you know, we can, we, we can rush, but, um, but we want to make sure we're getting it right because we can't play with food. That's the key thing, right? With with food, with health, you know, when you have to go through those regulations, it's because it it is detrimental. Like it's between life and death, and people don't realize this. It's not a SaaS company. It's not an incremental <laughs> app uh, that you exactly. know, happens. You can update it, right? You, you can't yeah. take it back. So but the benefit here is also yes, it takes longer to get there compared to SaaS for sure. But I, also, like that, the barriers to entry are much much higher as well. Right, for any company going into this space, we'll need to go through that same process. And so we now have a five-year head start. We're the only company in the world today producing protein, egg proteins using our fermentation technology. And so what we want to do now is really then cement our first mover advantage and drive adoption because now, you know, because we can build IP around our technology and also have, you know, we need a lot of capital to get to where we are. It's just going to take longer for other companies to catch up, even if they wanted to um, to come closer behind us. And so that also becomes an advantage that you can't just create an, an app, you know, two days later after someone else launches. And so it becomes, you know, the, 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 these moats are very real. And then the size of the price is also very real. I mean, the egg market is over $200 billion. Uh, and and it's the same exact product in every country on the in, in, in the world, right? They're all eating the same exact egg for the most part. Uh, and so it becomes also, you know, really attractive to be able to then rinse and repeat across the different regions of the world. Yeah. So now that you're talking about different regions, you know, a lot of uh, we've had a couple of uh, founders of unicorns on here. And I'm always curious about their uh, their mental model and thinking about partnerships and expansion. How did you approach that? I mean, you with, with Posing, it, it seems like it's three continents all at once. Uh, how did you think about this? Was this driven by yourself or was it driven a lot by the partner that you're working with, i.e. Ingredion? How, how did you think about that? I mean, really, it was the products telling us, like the, the customers, right? We, we try and really let the customers lead us. And we were, you know, you, especially early on, you need cu- customers that are that have very high pain points who are really willing to basically allow you to mess up um, early on. And like, that's something that I, maybe not all of all that people share, but like when you're scaling a business, when you're making product, things don't go perfectly the first time around. And so we have to, as we were shipping, we were working with customers that literally had no other option who were, and so were very kind in taking samples for us and, and, and allowing us to co-develop these products with them. And, and we would send them samples 
they would say, oh, this batch worked, but this one didn't. And then we would kind of go back and say, well, what, what happened here? And so that was really helpful. And a lot of these customers um, were sourced through, yes, through Ingredion, as well as other consultants that we work with that who have experience selling, for example, like animal-based pepsin. And the nice thing about what we're doing is we're not going into uncharted territory here. We're, all, we're basically creating drop-ins for the proteins that people know and use today. And so it, may, it makes it a little easier where we say, well, who knows this market really well? Who sold pepsin into the market already? Who buys these kinds of products? And we can we, we know that 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 pretty easily. And so then we reach out to them, get some, you know, and, and gauge their interest level and then start working with them. And so we got a lot of traction in Europe and in Asia and in North America in large part because the, those regions had the big, the highest pain points and they, they, mm. they were actively trying to find alternatives. And so for Agriplacer, we're working with some of the world's largest egg users who've committed to going cage-free, but cannot find any alternative because they, you can't get a cake to rise without using an egg. And so some of these companies have very high pain points that they're willing and eager to work with you even ahead of commercialization. And that's been really helpful for us. So we, we kind of let the pain points sort of drive the um, drive our product development and ultimately our commercialization because that's how we know we're going to what that, that's how we know that we truly have a product market fit and that we're developing something that the market actually wants. For sure. You, you're a disruptor, right? You're disrupting status quo. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I talked about this earlier, the fact that it's, it's taken so long. A lot of times we look at the world and there's a lot of problems, but people yeah. have been benefiting from these inefficiencies, right? There are big farmhouses that benefit from the way things are. Are you afraid of... Uh, you know, being seen as that rebel and uh, big companies coming after you? I mean, and even regulation in new markets, there could be lobbyists there. H- how are you thinking about this risk? Yeah. You know, I try to stay really focused on just executing and like what is a problem at hand today? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, to your point, if I, you know, there, there are so many things that could go wrong or there are so many things that could happen. And yes, one important part about being a CEO is managing that risk, and also being able to continue pushing um, and kind of staying in my lane, right there, and, and staying focused because what kills startups is not competition. What kills startups is not the you know is, is oftentimes not these external factors. What kills most companies are themselves. They are their biggest threat, and especially getting distracted. And that was something that a couple of advisors shared with me very early on that I thought, okay, we need to stay laser focused, put my head down and do this work that we find very meaningful. Because even if we own just 1% of the egg market, that's over $2 billion in revenue, right? In terms of like these markets are so massive that just executing well enough to, to own 1%, we, are a, we become a massive, massive company. And so I've learned to focus and not get too worried about those things because we know, I mean, fortunately in the U.S., the market is already massive, even if we become successful here. And and that's, I mean, fortunately, Latin America and a lot of other regions are very accepting of, of these technologies. The FDA has been approving products made using fermentation, proteins like ours, for 30 years and so from a regulatory standpoint, we're, I think, in, a, in very, very good footing because we and, – and that's why I love this technology itself because it's been around for 40 years. So there's very little risk from that standpoint. And then two is the consumers really want this. And it's it, it now there's a critical mass. It's not just us, but now there are dozens of companies and we have now capital. Right? We're now much larger. I think if you had asked me this three, four, five years ago, I would have been – you know far more concerned because we were we were a little fish now you know we have the ammunition we have the capital and we have the partnerships not just me and my own volition it is now our investor base and our partnership base that is going to also help us push this forward and and i like that right i totally believe in abundance mentality that's enough for everyone in this world and especially (laughs) if you're doing something right 
Uh, and yeah. in fact, you, you grow the pie, right? That's that's the beauty. Yeah. And I'm an egg enthusiast. As an Asian, <laughs> I grew up with the similar two eggs as well, you know, first meal in the morning. But if yeah. you can give me an alternative that um, tastes, feel, and has the same nutritional value, I'm all for it. So you're creating uh, value with the exposure that you're building as well. So I'm curious then, are you thinking the vision for uh, Clara Foods will be like, uh, like now we see milk uh, in the store, there's almond, uh, oat milk, yeah rice and all that is that going to be the future what's what's your vision here yeah absolutely even the dairy space is still in its infancy right there is but we've seen that now happen with milk where in the you know in the dairy section to your point milk cow milk used to dominate that category and now you see a rainbow right of options you have to your point the almond milk the hazelnut milks the macadamia milk you know oat milk hemp milk you name it now there's an option for everyone and that's the beauty of it right and what we want to do is just really give choice to people and have the market dictate and decide really is a product good enough to merit adoption and for us i think that that's only going to accelerate. But what I want to see and what I truly believe will be the future of food is that is that you will see that that across every major animal protein sort of market, the meat, milk, and eggs, or meat, dairy, and eggs, where the majority of products actually, like there's going to be just a, a ton, uh, so many more options. And, and people will now have the ability to choose, you know, maybe they they, they want, you know, a almond milk one morning and then they want oat milk for their coffee and they want regular cow milk for, you know, for their um, for their cereal, you know, and, and that there's now more to your point, the abundance mentality. I think with eggs right now, 99.8% of the market is still com- eggs from chickens. There is less than 0.2% of the market that's dominated by anything that's not an egg. And so there is huge, huge opportunity there. And I truly see this being a huge inflection point where you will, we will start seeing that for the X space as well. Um, so that there's a lot more diversity, a lot more options. And eventually you're going to see the, the, the alternative protein products actually not be alternative, but actually be the mainstream. And then the animal-based versions are going to be the more expensive ones and the ones in the corners of the grocery store or the aisles. Because at the end of the day, as these, as these companies scale beyond impossible ourselves, scale is what factory farms have today. That's the only advantage the efficiency standpoint is not there for those. And so once these companies like ours with AB InBev and others have scale, then at that point, it's it's really at the end of the day, the invisible hand doing its work where then ours end, end up dominating the market because unit economics dictates it. Love it. Well, that's a good segue into billion dollar questions. Quick questions, eight of them. In lucky Chinese fashion, right? I'm still Malaysian Chinese. <laughs> Eight questions. First thing that comes to mind. Uh, Bill and Dollar question number one, Arturo. Common misconception about you. I'm maybe like a little too kind. I, I, I think one of the, the things that I've learned over the last six years at Clara is, um, is I think just being really clear with, with uh with, with, with my team. And I used to be very quiet and very uh, soft uh, growing up. And, and I think over the last six years, I, I've learned to balance both the, the, um, the, the niceness with, you know, being clear. Right. High is high and low is low. The lowest low, I'll start with that one, which was laying off people. It is the worst experience ever. If, for me, it's a reflection. Every time like something happens, I, uh, I have to reflect on myself and like, you know, what could I have done better? How can I have, how could I have set this person up for success? And I really take that very personally. So every single time that happens, it is like a pit in my stomach and something that has made me really invest in the hiring process for people. Um, and then the highest high has been getting the call from Dave and Isha that they wanted to work with me uh, seven years ago. Uh, it's still something that I never thought I would be living my purpose on this planet so so early in my life you're very grateful you mentioned success there um when you think of the word successful who do you think of and why i think of greta thunberg and Mm -hmm. aoc alexander causa cortez and the reason why is because i love how unapologetic 
they are about the change they want to see in the world, like the bravery that that entails to even when people, you know, may say and think things like negative things about you that you persevere in spite of that. First advice given or that you've heard being given? <laughs> uh, don't pursue it because it, it's likely not going to work out. And I heard that when I was 16 and I wanted to go to Harvard and I was this little you know, Mexican boy from Texas uh, who had this big dream of wanting to go to Harvard. And I talked to a Harvard alum and he was like, don't go. People like us don't, don't do well in places like those. And wow. that was very crushing hearing it from the only person I'd ever met who had gone there from my hometown uh, who had gone, you know, a, you know, one or two decades before I did, uh, and mm-hmm. it was very crushing. And I, and I, I, I'm so glad that I didn't listen to him. Yeah. So you know that's interesting, and I want to just unpack this one a little bit because I had uh, the first female NFL coach on, Coach Jen, and a person of authority like that as well that she looked up to. A, a coach told her that she would never make it. How, how do you as a person that look up to someone in your mind as a young boy then, right, that fits uh, who could be a role model, tell you that you can't do something? And then how do you f- flip that around for yourself? You know, I, <laughs> I think there's always been a very defiant part of me that there was kind of like a screw you, I'm going to do it anyway. But in that moment... I, I was crushed and I, I like, I remember like I cried that night um, because it, it really, it, it was something that, that, that I, um, that I, I was not expecting. Usually people encourage you to pursue your dreams, even if you may be crazy. Right. And, um, and especially someone to, to your point in the position of authority, I, I think the way that I reconciled it was, you know, what that's, I mean, over time, I just, I rationalized it as that is one data point and, mm. That's one data point, period. Yeah. Hardest lesson that you've had to learn as a leader? Uh, hardest lesson for me has been in really believing in myself. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think for such a long time, I struggled with imposter syndrome. I mean, again, because of you know where I grew up in, and like at Harvard, I, I felt like I sometimes didn't belong because there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. Um, and then, you know, leading a biotech company at 22 uh, with no technical background was was something that that, that I, I was very self-conscious about. And I would wear blazers to work every, you know, every day for the first couple of years because of, uh, uh, because of that. And and looking now at the data and like how much I have with the group of uh, with the help of others, I've exceed I've succeeded. The company's doing incredibly well. We're crushing it. It's 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 now my job to inspire and lead my team, and that I'm no longer the quarterback, but I am the coach and really working to 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 lead the the the, the team. Not just for me anymore, but it's for others as well to share this vision, to share this mission, and for me to really. In turn, you know, to really believe that what we are doing is not just possible, but inevitable and really own that. Ah, love that. Love that so much. Well, that then the next one is almost like a roll on from that, but it's a best habit or a belief that you picked up in the last few years. So maybe pick the other one that changed your life. It has been taking five or 10 minutes to get present with myself and get rid of technology. Like get, I was like, I was so addicted to my phone for so long uh, and like always being on and not having the time to really think and be with myself and with my thoughts. A habit that I love is I take showers with the lights off and I just use that as a time to, to think and get present with my thoughts. And then I was you know, here, and I, I was a little stressed out, and I just sat down, yeah. I breathed, and it changes, it, it, it's, it's amazing how something so small can have such a big impact, but my, my, the rest of my day was, I was so much more relaxed after that, and I, I it's something that, that I'm very grateful that I picked up, and actually through my therapy, which is also another yeah. habit that I, or, or investment that I've made in myself that I'm very grateful for. Love that. And finally, uh, this one doesn't have to be perfect, but a guilty pleasure 
that you still continue to do practice that makes your life incrementally better? Oh, I love being like just being a bum for a day and like <laughs> eating pizza or like just some comfort, like junk food with like family yeah. and, and, and like sleeping in on like a Sunday. And, uh, and so that's been, uh, yeah, I would say that, 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 that that's been a huge one. And then the, the other one is I, I love my dog so much and I try yeah. to just spend as much time with them. And especially like on Sunday mornings, just kind of cuddling with, with them uh, and some pizza uh, uh, has been, <laughs> it is something that I, 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 so, I love so it. Much. I just got a mental image of you dogs and pizza on the bed. I love it. <laughs> love it. Well, Atro, thank you for that. And you know, the reason I asked this is because the truth is people think entrepreneurs that are successful, that you're this perfect vision of, a, a person that you do all the right things it's all about hacks right everything about productivity but hey we we gotta enjoy life and we're regular people as well that just are driven for the right reasons hopefully yeah i i i completely agree and that that is one thing that i struggled with so much is that i always had this idea of like who this perfect person who i needed to be right and i needed to have my life together and i needed to have and i, I just thought i'm so far away from that ideal and to your point i think one of the one of the, i actually one of the, the biggest the things that i'm most grateful for is having the ability to extend compassion to myself to cut myself some slack mm. like hey i'm doing okay like i don't have to beat myself up because i had pizza on Sunday because I, you know, because I wanted to sleep in because I didn't go to the gym like that, that self-love is, is something that has markedly uh, fundamentally transformed the way that I, that, that, that I navigate the world. Love it. Well, Aturo, don't beat yourself up. You're doing fantastic. And I am so honored. Um, frankly, I'm so honored to have seen your journey from, you know, your little lab and we're going to put pictures up and I will visit you in this bigger version and maybe a bigger, bigger version. But so grateful for your leadership, Aturo, for spending this time and for your friendship. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for, for the work that you do as well and for this, for, for this platform. I so appreciate it. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.